So uh, we're on on this uh, book of Matthew, um, and we're we're doing the second part of chapter six. If you've got a Bible with you, you, you can turn to that. We're going to crack straight into that. And I'm going to try to speak less than my normal hour this morning because we've got the update later. For those of you that are visiting, that was a mild attempt at a joke. Don't normally do an hour. Normally about 45 minutes. But there we go. So we try and keep this a little bit punchy this morning so that we can uh, do this vision and finance update in just a bit. So um, I think, like I'm sure you'll agree, the Matthew series has been quite an interesting one. We are taking time over it. As we often say, we really want to forensically uh, look into the gospel. And we've been taking the Beatitudes through bit by bit. And then Dan last week, I was actually not here last week, but I caught up obviously on what's been happening. Uh, Karen and I were, were kind of ambling without responsibility around the Lake District for our 22nd anniversary which was actually yesterday, but we decided to make a week of it. Uh, but we, we didn't actually. We had a weekend of it early. Um, but I think Dan last week was talking about the fulfillment of the law and looking at how important the word is. And then Jesus, as always, uh, kind of ramps things up. His, his, his sermons escalate. Uh, and so we're looking at um, uh, chapter 6. And um, uh, we're, uh, no, hold on, chapter, uh, where am I going now? I've lost me a bit. Where was I going? Beatitudes. No, sorry, go to, sorry, chapter 5, verse 21. Getting ahead of myself because I was reading it before I came out. So uh, you want to follow this through me. I'm going to read it straight off, and then we're going to take it verse by verse in bullet point fashion. Is that okay? Just to, just to expedite our way through so we can look at the money stuff and a vision after. So uh, we're, we're praying for a move of conviction upon everyone. Then we'll do the financial update. Okay, verse 21 in, in, in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Amen. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I'm just going to let this rest upon the Lord's people this morning. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? If you want to know what raka means, it's kind of like an insult. It's like a <laughs> about someone, which of course none of you ever do. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Got it? 
cheery, isn't it? You're worrying, where's he going to go with this next bit? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. I'm, I'm not seeing much of this happening around the, the body of Christ at the moment. I must be honest. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, you all know as a church, we've often said this, that we seek to take the word of the Lord as literally as we possibly can. But we've noticed that we've not been doing much eye gouging over the last 18 months. Much, I'm sure there's been no reason for anyone here to be gouging their eye out. But we've not been indulging in that particular spiritual practice for good reason. Now, um, we need to try and unpack verse by verse what's actually happening here. People often think uh, about Christians and Christianity that it is, uh, in a sense, a bunch of rules to live by. And to some degree, there's some truth in that. We do try and obey uh, the precepts and mandates of the Lord. You know, we, we, we try and live by a certain code. However, Jesus is pointing to something here that I think is, is, is far deeper for us to grapple with. When I was first uh, leading a church back in the um, 90s, we, um, there is someone in this church actually, that I, we were having dinner with on Friday, who thought that I was 50. I'm, I've not recovered from that. That's why I put on my young shirt, which I've now been sold as a Kaylee shirt. There we go. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Uh, in Back in the 90s, when we were leading a church, we, we, hit, this, um, we hit this quandary. Who do we marry? Because we weren't like the Anglican parish church that, you know, they sort of marry everyone who comes up. We could choose. When people came to us and said, we'd like you to marry us, would you pastor marry us in your, and use your grounds and your facility? We obviously wanted to be, you know, true to Scripture. So we would wrestle with, well, who can be married in our church? Or who would we do an infant dedication for? So as a group of elders, we'd start to do rules and you know we're not we're not unpacking the, the rest of this passage yet about divorce and remarriage because you know I remember that I did a I've stopped it there because I did a seminar once at Spring Harvest it took me two hours to get through so I'm not going to go into that today but as a church we wrestle with it so we're saying well what what if what if a couple come to us where there's been like uh, like adultery and divorce and then and then the adulterous couple want to get married and 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 now, what do we do? An elder will go, well, we, we, we mustn't, mustn't engage in such practice. You know, we mustn't marry people where, there's, where people have had multiple affairs and things like that. So, okay. Then someone will pipe up, but what if they've now become Christians? And like, that was the past. We'll go, well, um, you know, maybe, maybe we need to look at that particular angle then. Uh, okay, um, but what if there's someone wants to be married and they're not a Christian, but they had, had an affair, but it wasn't their fault, and then the other person left them, and they're on their own, and they've been lonely for years, and then they meet someone now they're desperately in love, and they were the victim. Well, um, maybe maybe we have to look at that particular angle as well. Then maybe look at that. And then basically, after about an hour, we were like, stuff this. <laughs> like, it's impossible. How do you deal with the nuances of life? You have to look at where people's hearts are, you see? 
You have to look at where the heart is, and it's a very difficult thing. You can have rules, but often the rules can crush people if you don't apply grace. And I think what's happening here is that Jesus is looking at the heart. So, for instance, verse 21, you've heard that it was said long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother's sister will be subject to judgment. What's actually happening here is Jesus is saying, if you know me, you know God, you know that he made you, you know that you live by grace. Why? And, and you, you are sustained moment by moment. And you only live and breathe because of my grace. Why would you have anger in your heart long term to anyone? Ultimately. That's, that's quite tough. Then you say, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm subject to this massive injustice. What like being nailed to a cross? So Jesus, like, it's this arrow into the heart. Look at your heart. Saying, it's like murder. If you're angry, that's, that's like murder. You think, well, that's a bit tough. Well, well, is it? So again, anyone who says to brother or sister Raku is answerable to the court. And if anyone says you fall, we'll be in, a, in, in danger of the fire of hell. You think, what? Calling someone an idiot? I'm going to go to hell for calling someone an idiot? Well, not for calling someone an idiot per se, but maybe it's an indication of what's happening in here. That's what Jesus is pointing to. If you were stomping around in life, calling everyone an idiot and a fool, it says something about where your heart is at, doesn't it? And maybe if that's your default position, is to go stomping around thinking everyone's an idiot. It says something about where you're at. Maybe if we're doing that, we haven't quite caught hold of the grace that God's shown us. Maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe if we're walking around seeing everyone through a filter of, I'm Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Perfect and everyone else is a complete plonker, maybe it's saying something about where we're at. It indicates that you've lost sight of the grace that was shown you. And maybe it's an indication that you don't love people. Maybe. So I think Jesus here in all these things is pointing back to the heart. I, um, I dug something out earlier. I, I love, a little bit, I love reading about heroes of the faith back in the past. I love biographies of you know, great generals and you know, commanders of the Lord's work. And I love reading about revivals. I love it. I mean, it's a bit of a giveaway now about where I'm at, but I, I love reading about the moves of the Holy Spirit in the past. And I, I just, can I read this to you? It's a few pages, but it's brilliant. I think it just, it, it shows you what happens when the Spirit of the Lord is really moving and your hearts get sorted out. I, th I think it's fantastic. So this is, this is, um, uh, kind of like a Welsh revival story back in the day. Um, so tremendous has been this. This is a, a visiting minister who wanted to check out what was going on. So tremendous has been this sense of an awareness of God that I've known men out in the fields, others at their looms, so overcome they were prostrate upon the ground. One outstanding trophy of grace converted while crossing a field testified so awful was a sense of God's presence that even the grass beneath my feet and the rocks around me seemed to cry out, flee to Christ for refuge. 
brilliant. So real and deep has been the conviction of sin that even the most hardened sinners, tough, hardened, and no- notorious characters of the district have literally cried out in agony of the soul. Some have been found lying helpless by the roadside. Let's call it. Stricken with conviction, as in the days of Wesley Finney. Another remarkable feature has been the persistent nature of the work of the Spirit in following men and women until decision was made. Such was the case of a young man who found, like Jonah of old, that it is imposs- it's, it's impossible to escape from God. One night, after being spoken about, to about his personal need of salvation, conviction suddenly gripped him and he began to tremble. This won't get hold of me, he said. I'll get away from you and drink my way out of it. Entering the drinking shop, he ordered his drink, but to his consternation, he overheard a group of men discussing their own great conviction of sin and fear of being lost. He trembled even more. This is no place for a man who wants to shake this off. He growled, I'll go to the dance and I'll dance my way out of it. He hadn't been in the dance very long when a young lady came up to him exclaiming, Oh, where would eternity find us if God should strike us dead tonight? (laughs) Tremendous conviction swept down upon the young man and he surrendered himself to Christ. So widespread was the work of conviction of sin that in some districts, hardly a person escaped. (laughs) Brilliant. A man who had very little time for God was one day driving along on the road when he suddenly saw before him a vision of hell. Startled, he pulled over to the roadside and kneeling beside it, surrendered to Christ. Sometimes conviction rested upon sinners for days, causing great distress of mind. Such was the case of a man so convinced of his godless life and seemingly unable to get peace of mind in spite of repentance that he rushed down to the seashore and hiding among the rocks prepared to commit suicide. A young woman, while kneeling in prayer, had a vision of this man, showing her exactly where he was and what he was about to do. And quickly rising to her feet, she called her minister, instructing him where to find the unfortunate man. The minister arrived just in time to save the man, not only from physical death, but also an eternal hell. One of the men, who later became a wonderful trophy of God's grace, was out in the fields when great conviction fell upon him. He began to tremble violently. You are not a sissy, he said to himself. What's the matter with you? The voice of God seemed to thunder into his soul. You are a poacher and a Sabbath breaker. He knew what God meant. He had been breaking the law, poaching. He was a drunken, a drunkard, a real godless fellow. And this was a new experience to him. Feeling miserable and wretched because of his great burden of sin, he went along to the church and was gloriously converted. A man sitting in a hotel was met by God in the same amazing way, stretching forth his hand. He was about to pick up his beer when he was suddenly became conscious of the presence of God and he began to tremble. Great conviction took hold of him as the voice of God began to thunder in his soul and putting down his beer, he gave up his drinking habit and was gloriously converted and became an evangelist. Here is the, convi- the kind of revival we need, the supernatural power of God gripping the hearts of men and women in soul-shaking conviction. I could, I could read that stuff for hours. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? When the Spirit of the Lord moves and you, become an, you have an awareness, grows inside of you, who you really are before the Lord, the grace that he's shown you, are you seriously going to go around calling people idiot? Is the point I'm trying to make. When you have a, a growing supernatural awareness of the grace of the living God in your life, are you really going to go around judging people? 
Are you really going to go around lusting after people when that person could become a beautiful brother or sister in Christ? That's what Jesus is saying to us. And so he then ramps it up. If we know this, if we know this, if it means that there's something toxic in us that's not right, well, well, deal with it. If you've got someone who's got uh, an issue with you, make peace. No matter if it costs your heart, no matter if it might really hurt you, you make peace because that's more important. Settle matters quickly. Yeah, don't commit adultery. Don't, don't lust in your heart. That could be somebody who's going to get saved. And, and, if, and if you've got struggles in these areas, be brutal. Now, let me tell you why you need to be brutal. Because in my experience, I've seen many people go tragically off the rails over time. What I've found is that sin and stuff doesn't just happen overnight. Let's talk about adultery. I don't think for most people, it can happen, it can happen like this, but for most people, most of my mates that have struggled in this area, and I've got some dear brothers in Christ who have just like got snared in this stuff, it don't just happen overnight. It starts way back in, in like, like just looking the wrong way. You don't just become a tax fraud expert overnight. You don't wake up and think, I'm going to embezzle millions of pounds. It starts way back. You don't become a burglar one day by waking up and thinking, I'm now going to become a cat burglar. I might struggle with the cat burglar bit. But you don't just wake up and start doing that stuff. It starts way back. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew 7, the narrow and the wide gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. The road to life is narrow. Many are the pressures to knock us off the road. So, for instance, if I'm, I've said this before, if I'm on a narrow path, you don't, if this is like the life of holiness, the width of that step, you don't very often wake up in the morning and find yourself way over here, like on, on the broad path, on the outer reaches of the broad path. It starts in the small things. So you're jogging along the narrow path, and then you take a one degree turning off. You just start looking the wrong way, dabbling in the wrong things. And then slowly but surely, you're just moving slightly away from the path. And over many years or many months, you then turn around, and you find that a narrow path is way over there and you can't even remember how you got there because you numbed and blunted the presence of the Lord in your life. Your conscience got seared in the wrong way. You, just, you, you, you lost all sense of conviction. Now what Jesus says is, if you find yourself being tempted in any of these areas, deal with it absolutely brutally. Because your sin will take you to places you do not want to go. And I've seen this many times. One of my closest friends who got knocked out of ministry because of immorality, didn't just wake up and get involved in immorality. His journey started way back. 
he got really involved in getting a bit materialistic. He started coveting. He started flirting. He started dabbling in things he shouldn't have done. And it wasn't all sexual stuff. It was like money stuff as well. And it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And then one day, the inevitable happened and his whole family got trashed. And it was beyond all hope, really, for them. It was so disastrous in so many different areas. That didn't happen overnight. There was a journey towards that. And Jesus says, deal with this very brutally. So his image is, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. You know, if your eye's causing you to sin, gouge it out. So what does that practically mean? Well, I know my weak areas. You will know your weak areas. So for me, one of the things I would do is, I'm in a couple of different accountability groups where we pray together and we share what's really going on. And, and I've often said, if you want to phone my wife and find out if I'm telling the truth, you can phone, but I'm so brutally honest in those groups that they pretty much know that I'm telling the truth anyway. And we all are. And we might fill in sheets sometimes. We say, you know, how much are you doing this and how much are you reading your Bible and, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's in some really brutally honest areas too. Because I know that I need that and my mates that I'm in ministry with nationally, they need that too. So I submit myself to that level of accountability. That works for me. It might be simply that sometimes if temptation's gripping you, you've got to do a runner. I've just got to keep it plain and simple. Run away from it. You're at a party and, and flirty Fiona or stud Sam is coming over to you and it's all a bit, all getting a bit dodgy. Do a runner. Get out of it. There's always an exit door to sin. I found that. Always an exit door. It's the equivalent of gouging your eye out. Get away from it. You're watching a TV program and it feeds something in you? Turn it off. Like, for instance, I've noticed that some things track towards other things. Gossip leads to hate. Every time. If you've got a problem with gossip, you're going to end up being a hateful person. If you've got to be, if you're a moany person, if you find that moaning is your medicine, and it is for some people, you're going to turn out to be a bitter old person. You'll be a bitter, old, moany, horrible person, and probably quite lonely. And people who are bitter get ill. Do you know that? A lot of people I've met who have got all sorts of persistent problems, often very bitter, moany people. Medics will see this often. I, I just think it's a real thing. If you've got a bit of problem with flirting, you're going to be taken down a road of lust. It's just going to happen. If you've got a problem with coveting, you're never going to be happy. The grass will always be greener and you'll never be satisfied. One solution to coveting, I've tried in the past, is just buy the thing you're coveting. It doesn't work. You might think that stops coveting. It doesn't. You just covet something else because it's a disease that's inside you. I was slightly joking, but it's mildly true. But that, that, that is a thing. One thing leads to another. And so Jesus says, deal with it at source. Get your heart right. Love people. Love God. Remember the grace that you were shown. That's why if you're walking around calling people an idiot, maybe there's something wrong. That's why if you're walking around lusting, it's going to take you to a road to hell. 
your sin will take you to places you don't want to go. If Jeremy Kyle feeds something in you you don't like, turn it off. Turn it off anyway. Well, it's the modern day Colosseum. I have to call it for what it is. Our society is, is building roads of hate about people and mockery. It's the Colosseum. You see it in the daily newspapers. It will pollute your soul. It will harm your heart. Reading the wrong stuff and watching the wrong thing will ultimately harm your heart. It really will. We all have different tolerance levels, but anything that's making a mockery out of people who God dearly loves and his son died for, there's something sick about that, in my opinion. I have to call it for what it is. I see society walking around, bumping their gums, moaning, being bitter and gossiping about everyone. I would like to think that I've uh, that that I I guard my heart against that toxic stuff as far as possible. I'd like to think you very rarely hear me moaning and gossiping and being bitchy. If I ever do, most people will call me out on it because I know it will it will take it, it should stand out. It will take me to places I don't want to go. And so we just got to cut it off at source. The other thing I just want to say is that Joshua 7 and the story of Achan would say to me that our responsibility isn't just individual, but we are a family as a church. If you're regularly committed here, we are a family. And Joshua 7 and the story of Achan says that we have corporate responsibility. The one man's sin can actually pollute the whole camp. So this is not just about you. You'll know the story of Achan. The, the, the people of God went into battle. They said, it's fine. We just sent two, 3,000 people because the Lord our God is with us. They went into battle. For the first time in many years, they lost the battle. They only lost a few men in battle, but they were completely overcome by fear because it was such an unusual thing. And Joshua got on his knees and he said, oh God, what is this? Oh God, what's happened? Why has a blessing come off us? And God says in the Bible, God says, get up off your face and listen to what I've got to tell you. Someone has stolen stuff. I said, don't steal. And God had given instructions to the army, do not touch the plunder, don't touch it. But Achan, he'd seen a nice robe, he'd seen a little bit of gold and silver, a little bit of stuff, and he got overcame by it, and he nicked it. And the presence of God came off all the people. And, it, and, and the Lord commanded that they be eradicated, and that sin was cut off. Hard of it is, though, to get our heads around, their whole family was wiped out. It cost them dearly. And I, I, I have to say that over the last 20 or so years, uh, Karen and I have found there have been some times when the blessing seems to come off a church or a ministry I've been involved in, and it is often the sin of just one or two people. It's taken the blessing of the Lord off. You see, you could just be a church, a group of people, and you can make things happen. Or you can seek to be a church that dwells in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That takes you to a different place. That's a different sort of church. I'm not saying we got there yet, but we're trying to get there. We're trying to please the Lord. If you want him involved here, and we want to see miracles, we want to see the stuff that's in that, then we, we, we have to walk tenderly before the Lord, walking attentively before him. It therefore means that if we grieve him, it becomes very noticeable. I remember a time at the last church I led, we were there for over a decade. Uh, the offerings, this isn't about the business thing later, but it's really not. It's just a coincidence. The offerings, had, and the offerings haven't come down for us, but the offerings in that church had come down for the first time ever. We'd, we'd struggled with money. And it was a big church, a lot of money coming in. We had a lot of commitments. 
and the money just came down. And this prophet guy phoned up and he said, he said, how are you doing with finances? Totally out of the blue. Only the elders knew. So how are you doing with your finances? I went, taking a bit of a dip. He said, I, I was praying this morning, I believe the Lord's saying that one of your deacons is in sin financially. I thought, wow, how bizarre is that? Anyway, we didn't have an inquisition or anything, but we just prayed that the Lord would reveal it because we're not spiritual policemen, right? We're not, you know, leaders are not spiritual policemen. Our job is to keep our hearts right, to keep us focusing towards the Lord, not to police you. I really believe that. So we prayed about it, and one deacon did step forward. And he said, I've, I've got to step down because I've got myself involved in X, Y, and Z. And he stepped down, and the offerings went back up. How weird is that? Your sin doesn't just affect you. It can affect the family. So we have a corporate responsibility as well. So, just to recap, as a, a little finish here, keep your heart right. Remember the forgiveness and grace that you've been shown. If you're walking around viewing people through a filtered judgment, maybe there's something wrong with us. Deal with stuff brutally. Deal with it hard. Deal with it cleanly. Don't compromise in it. Remember where things will lead you. Your sin will take you to places you don't want to go. I don't say anything of this to try and condemn or convict people. I'm saying this because I really believe that we have a precious and beautiful future in front of us. And the enemy would love to take us slightly off the narrow road. And it is such a, it's such a creeping thing. Sin is such a pernicious creeping thing. We just need to be very vigilant. But I do want to stress, you know, I, I really felt a need to say this this morning. I'll just re-emphasize what I said a minute ago. I don't think that Dan and I or anyone in leadership here going to the future, I don't believe our calling is to police people. I really, I think that's so wrong. I think our job, as far as it's possible, is to keep the temperature hot, to keep us loving the Lord, and to try and demonstrate that. That's why we need your prayers. I think we, we've got to be the models of grace and humility and, and trying to keep our hearts pure. It, it means that sometimes if we try and do that, even the slightest thing may seem like a big magnified sin. But I think that's our job. As we, as we, as we follow Jesus and imitate him, so follow that. But we are to point beyond ourselves to the Lord. And all of us have a responsibility to try and keep the temperature hot as we see people coming to Christ. So if you see your brother or sister in the Lord straying, don't police them. Put your arm around them. How are you doing? Let's spend a bit of time together. How are you doing? And as much as you might be looking at stuff in their life, remember there's fingers pointing back at your life too. That beautiful picture, isn't it, of when, when, when the Pharisees wanted to stone a woman for committing adultery. And Jesus just kneels down on the floor and draws something in the sand, distracts everyone. And then says, well, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. And everyone walks away muttering. <laughs> so what a beautiful picture. You know, just get your heart right. Watch your own life. Look out for each other. Keep praying. Let's all take responsibility to keep the temperature hot. And if we see these temptations and these things creeping on us, deal with it, like, harshly in your own life and cut those things away.
I'll, I'll finish there. But I was just reflecting on my work at the Message Trust. And we see people coming out of terrible patterns of addiction and life of crime and all kinds of things. And our re-offence rates for people we work with are really low. But when you look at it, if you go there, you think there are rules and there are boundaries we apply. But you know what the, the big thing that gets people through? Just keep loving people and pointing to Jesus. Keep putting an arm around them. Sometimes you have to put the red light on when things get a bit out of hand and you just have to call it quits. But we find over the years, we found this kind of we were working on the estate. Sometimes you just got to keep loving people and loving people and loving people. And eventually, many of them will come through. So we just got to stay in grace and just keep our own lives hot in spiritual temperature before him.